morning, everyone. Um, welcome to the first ever uh, session of the New Austrian School of Economics in London, uh, the New Austrian Manifesto. So we're all very, very lucky and grateful to have Professor Fekater with us. And without further ado, um, Professor Fekater. Thank you, Sandeep. <coughs> Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It's a real pleasure to welcome so many familiar places, but my special welcome is to those who hadn't been attending previous conferences. Now, this has been going on for about 12 years, and I'm very happy that our group family, I call it, is growing. We every time we have more and more people. This is a, an historic occasion in the British Museum, thanks to the diligence of my friend and co-worker Sandy Jetley. And uh, I also want to mention some of my other co-workers and friends. Peter von Kopenola of Belgium, Bernadette Kalmar from Hungary, the newest addition to our uh, team, and uh, many others, which I don't want to uh, go into the details. This morning, I am going to present officially, although it has been circulating around or on the internet and otherwise, what I call the New Austrian Economics Manifesto. Uh, they have copies? Okay, yep. the copies have been distributed. If you have missed yours, we can get you a copy uh, after. It's all on your USB sticks. Um, it's the first, the first chapter of the lecture notes. So. Mm. so I would like to explain the meaning and the background of this document. All the more, for all the more reasons, because at the end, tomorrow, Sunday at the end, we are going to have a, a, a vote which would make this official. Right now, it's a draft subject to changes, subject to addition or omission, or ch whatever changes uh, come up in the discussion. So feel free to mention the points. Uh, we structured the program in such a way that it's around the six major topics which are mentioned in this particular document. And uh, they are all points which makes us, the new Austrian School of Economics, different from what I call the post-Mises Austrian School of Economics. This is a group of people in the United States uh, centered around 
Auburn, Alabama, the Ludwig von Mises Institute, and they also consider themselves as being of the tradition of the Austrian school. So there is a competition, and as I hope we all agree on this, competition is good for you. It's not bad for you, it's good for you. Because competition brings us new ideas, new approaches, expands our vision, our perspectives, and we learn. We, are, we should be ready to learn at all times. And as far as I'm concerned, I'm all for this. So I welcome this competition, and I hope that this is reciprocated on the other side, although I cannot vouch for that, <laughs> that the understanding is there. Probably it's not yet, but I hope we are going to get one step closer to it. So without any further ado, I am going to present our approach. Our hero, our source of wisdom is Karl Menger. Karl spelled with a C, because there's also a Karl Menger spelled with a K. And if you didn't know, that's his son who became a mathematician in the 1930s. He moved to the United States, became a professor at the University of Illinois. And uh, he had occasional contributions to economics, but basically he was a mathematician, a rather well-known mathematician in his own right. But we go back to the father, Karl, spelled with a C. Okay, he lived from 1842 to 1921. And uh, his, there's no chance I can review his work, but it's a major, major uh, contribution to not just the science of economics, but to philosophy, and uh, we are unwavering in following Karl Menger's, Karl's with a C, the father, in uh, following his philosophy, his methodology, and his economics. And I want to emphasize this because uh, we started our movement, the new Austrian School of Economics, by criticizing the post-Mises Austrians for paying only lip service to Karl Menger. And uh, in fact, in many cases, which some of which will be spelled out, or are already spelled out in this document, deviating from the teachings of Karl Menger. We don't look at our movement as a kind of heresy or as a kind of 
side movement. We proudly declare ourselves the followers of his economics without any compromise, without any apology. We just take it and build on that. Now, Karl Menger, the volume of his publications is relatively small if you compare it to other economists, even Austrians like Ludwig von Mises or uh, Friedrich Hayek and many others. But this, uh, this uh, published work of Karl Menger is very seminal, very basic, and some of the things he just sketched out without going into details, possibly because of the lack of time. He was a very busy man. He had political offices. He had academic offices. And he was active in the monetary reform which took place in Austria, Hungary in the last decade of the 19th century. And uh, by the time he retired, his mental and physical power was in decline. And he was working with his son, Karl, with a K, the son, uh, on second edition of his major work, The Principles of Economics, Grundsatze der Volkswirtschaftslehre, the German original title, uh, a major, major work, very, very deep, very, very basic, and uh, very unfortunately, this cooperation between the father, Carl with a C, and the son, Carl with a K, didn't carry uh, to success because the father died in 1921, and the son was not capable of completing this major work. So as a result, one very, very important chapter in economic science, the theory of interest, is unfinished. I am deeply convinced that Karl Menger, his father, wanted to complete it before he died. But it wasn't meant to be. He died before he completed So. I thought it was one of our mission here, New Austrian School of Economics, to complete that work. And I'm offering my own contribution to this, but it's an open field, and I appeal especially to the young people around here that they should consider it as a challenge and add their own thoughts to this. How, on the basis laid down by Karl Menger, we could build a theory of interest. I am showing you the direction, the way I think Karl Menger would have approved. And I invite everybody, especially the young people, to 
study this and continue the work. So this is an unwavering commitment which we have towards Karl Menger. We do not compromise on this, that if unless the idea is explicitly supported by Karl Menger's writing, we are not accepting it as a basis. And then one very important example of this is the quantity theory of money. And as you know, this is very topical because what we are witnessing today is a global experiment with fiat money, with irredeemable currency. Basically, it's the US dollar, but all other currencies in the world, some of them are more important, like the Swiss franc. Some of them are less important, like uh, various small countries <coughs> issuing their own version of uh, fiat currencies. And in the history of economics, there was not one single example that that experiment was successful. They have all failed without exception. And what the establishment economics is trying to do, convince you that this experiment will fail because it's global. All the previous experiments were isolated local experiments and they say that this is the reason they failed. And now, for the first time, there is not one single country, not one central bank in the world where they have currency backed with value, with tangible value. All the currencies are based on promises of governments which are notorious of breaking promises in their history, every one of them, including the United States. They are promises, currency, money, banknotes, they are just promising But the promises are made by governments and central banks which have reneged on previous promises. So how can you expect that they will live up to their promises? And their strategy is also clear. They put the currency through a process of slow, devaluation, what's the other word? So Depreci slow depreciation. So slow depreciation. The money is losing value, but so slowly that people at large, most people, 
don't even notice or they don't want to notice it or they just believe that this is so natural as the weather. There's not much you can do about it or the climate or the fact that the planet Earth is circling around the sun. You may like it, you may not like it, but you have to accept it. That's what creates the seasons, the four seasons of the year, and so on. And they say, well, inflation is just like that. Why? Uh, you can't fight the fact that the sun is rising on the east and setting on the west. If you do, that's like Don Quixote. The tilt tilting against the windmill if you try to fight inflation. It's given. You have to take it. But that's not true. And that's one of the greatest lies of our age. And it is going to be the source of very great misery worldwide, including unemployment, including wholesale collapse of companies and enterprises. Some of them well-deserved, some of them just innocent bystanders swept away by this whirlwind, whirlwind which is sweeping the globe. And as a result of this global experiment with fiat money, so there you have it. This is our fight. We want to enlighten people. We want them to understand what is going on, that they are gravely misled, and they should wake up and do something about it. The individual cannot do anything about it, but perhaps if we succeed by our work of enlightenment, making people more enlightened, then this perhaps can make a difference. So we hope. All right. Now, I have uh, organized the material in this manifesto in a way that we concentrate on six points of criticism, where we criticize our friends, I call them, the post-Mises Austrians, sometimes I call them for simplicity the American Austrians. <laughs> you notice the tongue-in-cheek uh, American and Austrian at the same time. But so they are. Anyhow, I organized six points that's not exhaustive. There, you could continue the list, but I thought as a starter I'd pick the six most important areas where I can, uh, I can coherently uh, describe our differences and offer the uh, solution, offer the uh, resolution to the conflict. And I subdivide these six into two groups. The first three points of criticism I call uh, errors of 
commission, as opposed to the other three, which are errors of omissions. It's a subtle difference. Commission is when you knowingly do something which turns out to be less than perfect. And omission is when you do not mention something which is very relevant to the point, but because of your inclination, you drop it, you don't mention it. But that's also an error. Because even if you don't like it, even if you are convinced that this is wrong, you should mention it and offer your criticism or reasons why you deviate from that point. So this is the structure. Six points, three of them errors of commission, and the remaining three errors of omission. So I will start going into some details. I won't be able to cover the whole ground, but the rest of the conference, uh, we are coming back to some of the highlights. And in any case, there will be discussion as well. So I will start now with the first error of commission, which I uh, describe as the commitment to the equilibrium theory of price. And the concept of what uh, Ludwig von Mises called the evenly rotating economy. This is an expression due to Ludwig von Mises. He talks about evenly rotating economy, which means production, consumption cycle, and it comes back. And uh, after recycling the goods and the byproducts, and so it comes back again to production, consumption, and keeps going on. Just like the uh, recycling of water in nature comes down in the form of rainfall, and it fertilizes the land, brings out the crops, and the water then, through the conduit of rivers, go into the ocean, and also the whole surface of the world <coughs> contributes to the water evaporating. Clouds are being formed and driven by the wind, and eventually the water comes down again in the form of rainfall, and the cycle continues. So using this as an analogy, you could argue exactly the same is happening in the human economy. It's an evenly rotating <coughs> economy. Now Mises, of course, knows better that this is only an approximation. And what is more, it's a very crude ap approximation. In reality, the rotation, yes, is there. But the rotation is not even because the next time the rotation starts, it will be different. 
it will be at a higher level, or maybe at a lower level, if you are not fortunate enough to have a, a built-in progress in, in the system. Uh, the Greek, the ancient Greek philosopher, philosopher Heraclitus said that you cannot step into the same river twice. The very deep thought, you cannot, no matter what you do. Because when you are stepping into the river for the second time, it's not the same river anymore. It's a different river. There's so many things happen between the two steps. And this is exactly what is happening in the real world, in the human economy. It's not evenly rotated because, because when it comes back after recycling to the second time, it will be a very different economy. There will be uh, <coughs> failed enterprises, there will be new enterprises, there will be innovations, there will be new inventions, there will be different energy resources utilized, and many, many other details will be different. So the concept of evenly rotating economy is a phantom. There is no such thing. Now, it's another question how useful it is to use it all the same as analogy. And of course, the post-Mises Austrian school says it's an extremely fertile idea, and it is uh, the way to look at it. And we say, no, it's not helpful, because it's throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So it's a diversion which are not helpful. It's actually damaging the basic message. So the equally equilibrium theory of price, which of course says that there is a unique price of whatever you are talking about, which is the result of an equilibrium process whereby supply and demand are equalized. And when that point is reached, the price which clears the market which moves the quantity of goods from the producer to the consumer is going to be unique and it's determined. Now, it took hundreds and hundreds of years. This idea is not new, it goes back to Aristotle and maybe beyond. And uh, all this time, uh, people believed, and even today, they are deeply committed to the idea of equilibrium. The price is being formed by a process of equilibrium. And it's a convergent, uh, convergence process. And the result is a unique market price. Now, Mies, uh, I'm sorry, Manger threw away all this. He, 
he said there's not one grain of truth in this whole idea of equilibrium. On the contrary, the process is one of disequilibrium. Far from having a convergence, the result of which is equilibrium and unique price, there, there is a divergent process. There is no unique price. It's a phantom. It's an unhelpful phantom. We just have to forget about the unique price being produced by equilibrium. Uh, we have two prices, in fact. And one is the asked price, which the producers are asking for their product. And there's the bid price, which is always lower than the asked price, which the consumers are willing to pay. And the very, very, very important concept is the spread between the asked price and the bid price. And that can vary. And in fact, the tendency is for the spread to diminish, to get smaller, smaller, but never going to be zero. It will always be positive, spread between the asked price and the bid price. So rather than having a convergence of equilibrium producing the unique uh, uh, market price, we have, uh, you might also call convergence, the spread is getting smaller and smaller, but never going to zero. When the two prices would uh, coincide, then you could say, there, it's the equilibrium. That is not what is happening. It's just depending on the participants and the market makers uh, and so on, it could get smaller and smaller but never zero. So that is the big, big first discovery of Menger. R rather than talking about an equilibrium process, he talks about the disequilibrium and he actually justifies it by saying, and this is actually very, very convincing if you think of it. Just think of it. When does exchange take place? Asks Menger. Somebody has a good, and somebody else has another good, and they would like to exchange. The equilibrium theory says when the market reaches that equilibrium, supply and demand are equal, then the exchange takes place. Wrong. It's not the case. What happens, says Menger, and this is a great insight, uh, every time I talk about this, I get a warm feeling in my heart <laughs> that it took thousands, 2,000 years, say, after Aristotle to see that. 
let's call this guy A and this guy B. Now it's absolutely necessary for A to want this more than this and for B to want this more than this. Because if this desire is not present, there will be no exchange. That is what motivates the exchange. That A wants this more than that, and B wants this more than that. And when this is the case, exchange takes place. As simple as that, which is, which is just wonderful. If, if they say by some method of measurement these things have the same value, exchange takes place, this is wrong, Manger teaches. It's wrong because if they have the same value, there's no point in exchanging. You have the same value already. You have the value. But you want to have this more than this, then yes, there's a motivation. The other fellow wants this more than that. Yes, exchange takes place. So this is the great insight of Menger, which, and, and then you can throw out 90% of what they teach at universities today about equilibrium and equilibrium price and supply and demand and equating them and so on and so forth. That's the wrong way of looking at things. You've got to look at the ask price and the bid price. And the thing is that there is a separate explanation for what the ask price is and for what the bid price. The same explanation will not do the two jobs. You've got to have a different, because that's what happens on the production side. And the other explains what happens on the consumption side. And once you have these two uh, theories, essentially, which explains the ask price, and separately, explains the bid price, then you look at what forces are there which make the spread. It's a key word, spread. Absolutely key word. You probably won't find it in a course on Keynesian economics. <laughs> it's always equilibrium, equilibrium. Rehashing the same thing. So that is the thing there is arbitrage, and that's another key word. Now, Mises, Ludwig von Mises has a very important volume, Human Action. It's a thick volume, and if you look up the, uh, the uh, index at the end, and try to find arbitrage, it's not there. It's not. But we did run a search engine okay, on the computer. And the search engine did turn up arbitrage. So actually, this is the fault of the index editor. Because Mises does 
mention arbitrage once in the whole book of uh, 800 or 900 pages. But it's a very minor point he makes about arbitrage. Whereas arbitrage right in the center, if you approach the subject through the eyes of Menger, arbitrage is absolutely basic. You know? And in this case, when we look at the diminishing spread, arbitrage is done by the market makers. They buy at the lower bid price and sell at the higher ask price. And the difference is their profit. But when they make a profit, this contributes to the diminishing of spread, right? Because they buy at the higher ask price. This act of buying makes the ask price lower. And they... The way. Oh, the other way. They buy, sorry. They buy at the lower bid price. But that pushes the bid price very slightly, but it pushes it up and they sell at the higher... Well, everybody else has to buy at the ask price and sell at the bid price. The exceptions are the market makers. This is a, a profession of, of its, in its, on its own right. They make a living by doing arbitrage between the ask price and spread price. And their action causes the spread to close it, but never to zero. Because once they get close enough to zero, they lose their profit. So they <laughs> stand back, say, no, no, I'm not committing my funds to this arbitrage because it doesn't pay for itself. And when they do send, the spread will bounce back to a, a wider, and then the whole cycle starts all over again. stands for quantity. quantity and the price. price. Okay. This is the traditional, let's say, mainstream. Yeah. The supply curve, the demand curve, and they intersect. There's no intersection in the Manger concept. No intersection. Only the close of the spread. Could you uh, draw the spread explicitly? The, yeah, the two points were yeah, vertical. 
the commercial range? No, no. Before you go to uh, spread is the difference between the ask and the bid price. Yes. No, they, on the curve itself, the two it's points. Point. No, no. Where your horizontal line reaches the curve, there's a point. No, no. The horizontal dotted line. 